immersive cultural enrichment on board and on shore, freshly prepared regional cuisine, Viking sails the rivers of the world and takes travelers to the heart of iconic destinations. Discover more at viking.com. Learn how to plan, invest, and live smarter with the Raymond James For What It's Worth podcast. Featuring insights from leading professionals, you'll get the latest in wealth management, market commentary, and engaging research. Listen today at raymondjames.com podcast. I'm Jace Laycob, and you're listening to Masterpiece Studio. Another sunny Cambridgeshire spring, another series of baffling murders pouring down upon the British countryside. For Granchester, it's just another string of cases for Inspector Geordie Keating and his priestly partner, the Reverend Sidney Chambers. I miss the old days. Which bit? The wars, the bombs, the abject misery? At least you knew your neighbors. The ones that weren't dead. It's not the same anymore. That's all I'm saying. But now, after years of public service, both holy and otherwise murderously helpful, Sidney is leaving the village. He's pursuing a romance with the young American Violet Todd, but also seeking a higher calling of a different order. We can help people. We could do so much good. You could get arrested for being with me. I don't care. You'll be hated. I don't care. I love you, Violet. Granchester series creator, executive producer, and head writer Daisy Coulomb and her team knew they'd have to say goodbye to series star James Norton in this fourth season. But, she tells us, nobody was prepared for how much his departure would hit them. You know, there were proper tears on set, especially between Robson and James, who, you know, are still, they still meet up, they're still buddies. They just got on brilliantly. Coulomb looks at the tenure of Sidney Chambers, his incoming replacement, Will Davenport, and the mysteries and storylines yet to come this season. And this week, we are joined by Granchester creator, executive producer, and head writer, Daisy Coulomb. Welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here again. Uh, Before we dive into specifics, uh, take us back a bit to the development of this season's arc. Going in, you knew James Norton and and Sidney Chambers would be leaving Granchester. How did you approach this major departure in terms of story? In a way, well, every series, we um, try and come up with a theme. Um, You know, it might be... Uh, trial and retribution or some kind of theme and this series because James was leaving it kind of meant that change became our theme you know change is in the air in Grantchester it's 1956 things are changing and so in a way we kind of because we knew it had to happen sadly James had to leave we embraced it and and kind of made it a part of the shape of the series as a whole so his leaving was about new beginnings and uh, Will coming in was about yeah new beginnings for our show and why was it important to you that Sydney get a happy ending, as it were? It's really interesting. At one point, we were going to kill him because, you know, that's obviously one of the most dramatic things you can do. But then you don't want to spend a whole series kind of mourning the loss of a character. You kind of need to move on and sort of shake things up. So by giving him a happy ending, it meant that we were free to bring in a new character and celebrate his ending and, and celebrate Will's new beginnings. Uh, despite the ending of the third season, many viewers assumed that Sydney and Amanda could somehow find their way back to each other. Uh, why did you opt to bring in Simona Brown's Violet Todd as a, a new love interest for Sydney? I think Sydney and Amanda, we'd gone through every permutation of it, and it felt to us, 
we wanted to be brave and do a new story and to I suppose for to find a love interest that completed Sydney and um and he wasn't constantly on the back foot and didn't have a history with you know it's a new a new dynamic and it just felt like something interesting to do <laughs> I think in the Sydney Chambers novels, of course, Sydney marries German immigrant Hildegard. Yeah. Did you have any conversations with James Runcie about wrapping up Sydney's story here? We we did, and it's funny because I suppose for us the series has kind of diverged so much from the books that it felt sort of slightly odd to go back to it. And actually, I think our Sydney is a different Sydney. Who I'm not sure Hildegard, our Sydney would and. James Runcie's Hildegard would actually fit anymore. Although in the books it is lovely that he kind of gets married and has a child and, you know, who knows, maybe it will all fall apart with Violet and he'll end up there in a few years' time. <laughs> Did it feel like a luxury to be able to write Sydney's storyline to its conclusion with James on hand and not have to wrap up those plot threads off screen as, as so often happens? Yeah, I mean, we were so lucky. I mean, James, from the moment we started working with him his star rose so quickly and we were you know we there was a point where we could have lost him at the end of season three um but he was very kind and he wanted to give his character a send-off too so it worked out well for all of us and it was really you know there were proper tears on set um especially between Robson and James who you know are still they still meet up they're still buddies they just got on brilliantly I mean, what was the atmosphere like on on James's final day of shooting? How emotional did it get on set? Uh, how much did did Robson Green cry? What was lovely was the final scene. One of the final scenes they did, which I thought was a beautiful idea, was um, uh, James's scene with uh, Tom Brittany, who plays Will. So it was kind of the handover scene in the cell where they talk about Geordie, and and basically we wanted the scene where it's the handing of the baton over to the new character to say. You know, Geordie can be an idiot sometimes, but he's a good friend. He's a stubborn old sod. So am I, unfortunately. There was a time I would never break a confidence. Meeting a man of the law changed that, did it? Let's just say Geordie gave me a new perspective. So that was one of the final scenes they filmed. Robson was there but watching behind the camera. And... And then everyone just had a little cry and had a little glass of champagne. And yeah, no, it's just, it felt like the family lost somebody. But then Tom Brittany is, weirdly, has exactly the same energy as James, brings exactly the same quality of warmth and inclusion. And so we've just been really lucky. We mentioned change. Uh, the season begins with Sydney and Geordie on a stakeout. Change, as you say, is definitely an underlying theme this season. Uh, with this first episode in the civil rights movement, how did you look to embody that sense of social and political transformation? Well, it was interesting because uh, for us, we're actually slightly pulling the civil rights movement forward in time to 56. I think it was slightly later in the 50s. But I was really inspired by, of all people, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who... Um, I read an interview where he was talking about Hamilton and he was saying the story of America, you know, that that is the story of America then told by America now. And I thought, I really want to do civil rights. I really want to do that, that sense of change. The world is changing and moving forward. Um, and so that's why we just wanted to do something quite explosive and kind of bold in the first episodes. I think it just worked really well for Sydney to have 
a cause, a social uprising, something that meant something to him and, get, and gave him purpose. And meanwhile, we just we just tried to find really interesting characters, I suppose. I got slightly obsessed um, with Reverend Todd, this guy who has to embody um, religion and kind of has to sort of, in the face of adversity, has to be really calm and controlled. And it's like, what's that to be, you know, to be a man like that, to, to feel angry and not be able to express it? I just thought there's something really interesting, putting him in a scene with Sydney. And so it was, for me, it was about the civil rights movement, but it was also about characters that challenged Sydney's view. It's clear that Sydney is bored. He's stuck in a rut. Yeah. He's putting himself in danger with bloody heroics and listening to the virtues of baking soda, water, and a vigorous scrubbing with a sturdy brush. <laughs> uh, psychologically, where is Sydney's head at when we pick up with him at the start of the season? He is. I think you're exactly right. He's bored. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He's basically going through the motions at church. The, you know, he's a religious man and he will never be anything but, but religion isn't exciting him anymore. And the world of Grantchester is slow and, you know, a bit murdery sometimes, but mainly slow and sort of <laughs> kind of tame. And he's looking for more. He just doesn't know what he's looking for, I think. He's he's desperately searching for something and in walks Violet. Reverend Todd's talk in the church is interrupted by Gregory Jones and, and fireworks, which sound eerily like gunfire. There's a panic as people flee, becoming trapped in a very small corridor. Sydney wears an expression of claustrophobia, of, of pure terror. Is this meant to evoke a sense of PTSD from the war? Visually, we wanted to do something that was sort of representative of his being trapped in his world, in a way, and trapped in these sort of backward-thinking people who spreads hate and he needs to burst out that door and, and move forward with positivity that's but actually I suppose it is in a way it's about it's harking back to his war um and the struggles he had with that Sydney and Violet appear to be holding each other up in this horrific moment at one moment Sydney seems to pull her up as she faints uh, is this intense moment what forges their connection yeah we always talked about uh their relationship is forged in fire. They're always, you know, they're together in adversity. There was a stage direction in that where they kind of locked eyes and, you know, it was in, that mo- in this intense moment of we could both die. You know, they see something in each other. Violet can not only put Sydney in his place, but she also calls him out for his failures or shortcomings. Uh, was it essential to you that he be paired with someone who would not only give him an injection of optimism, as we've said, but also provide him with that much-needed cause or mission? Yeah. Sydney's a kind of, he's a wallower as well. You know, he wallows in self-pity quite a lot. And we really wanted a character that was like, hang on a sec, you've got everything. You're a, you know, a middle-class white man. What's your problem? Kind of thing. It just, it, Sydney needed to be challenged in his, not only his religious life, um, but as a man, really. And I, I suppose that's why we didn't go back to Amanda, because I'm not sure she she would ever challenge... You know, she kind of allows him to be himself, and I think he needs a good kick up the backside, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Violet herself is a hoot. I love the scene where she pulls out that bottle of gin with the prostitutes. No offence, lady, but the last thing we need is an uptight, Bible-loving bitch telling us that Jesus will save our souls. He hasn't saved us yet, and I'm pretty certain he ain't going to save us now, so. Any glasses that aren't smashed, or is this bobble-loving bitch going to have to drink from the bottle? 
she reveals herself to be a lot less straight-laced than the viewers might expect. Where did the idea or the genesis for Violet as a character come from? What makes her tick as her creator? Well, we did quite a lot of research and, well, and found there's not a huge amount on the women of the civil rights movement because although they were a very forward-thinking bunch, the women, in a way, were treated like the sort of the people to make the tea and, you know, support and facilitate the men. Um, you know, it was the 1950s still, so... Um, but it, it just... It struck us that we wanted a woman who, if she lived in a different time, she would, you know, she'd be president kind of thing. She she knows what she wants. She's clear. She uses her religion for good. She's, she's just feisty and brilliant. We just... And also, I just... The, the kind of moments like that, the gin, it's... It, when you get a nice character, they start writing themselves a little bit. I didn't know she was going to do that until I was writing it. I thought, oh, she's got some gin in her bag. Brilliant. So, you know, you kind of, you just embrace, the, You once you kind of know you want them to to be, I suppose in a way you have to set up a character in uh, in one and a half hours or whatever. You've got to make them stand out. And those kind of moments, I think, do help. The seduction scene upstairs at the vicarage was as unexpected as it was passionate. <laughs> is it grief or passion or both that brings the two of them together at this moment? Well, I think it's both. It's kind of bad Sydney at his best. Because, um, funnily enough, when I did the first draft, I don't. I think he kind of kissed her, and then we were like, "This is come on. He's got to, you know, he's got to cross a line here." Because it's Sydney. He always crosses the line. He can't help himself. No, never. <laughs> Uh, there is some stunning sequences in this episode. One of my favorites is the scene in which Reverend Todd, played by the always extraordinary Patterson Joseph, yeah. uh, asks Geordie for a bowl of water with which to wash his son Charles's corpse. May I have a bowl of water, please? You can't touch him. I bathed him on his first day in this world. I shall bathe him on his last. How difficult was it to write this, this very emotional scene? Funnily enough, that again, that's one of the scenes where it just sort of, I knew, I liked the idea that you, you bring a child into the world and you wash them on their first day and then he's not going to stop now, it's, he's going to wash him on his last. And I suppose what I found interesting about Reverend Todd was that he's quite sort of, not repressed, but he his emotions were held back and in that moment he's going to do something beautiful and sort of quiet but without saying it, if you see what I mean. He's not a man of words necessarily to his family. He's a man of action. And I just, that kind of came quite naturally, that scene. I like, I like that scene as well. He's so good, Patterson Joseph. I mean, it's, he's, he's amazing, particularly in that, in that scene. And it's the little things in that scene, uh, the sense of the, the intimate and the personal contrasted with the, the clinical and the impersonal. Yeah. The tag on the corpse's toe, the sterility of that police morgue. How much of that did you front load into the script and how much came out on the day via Patterson's performance or direction? I mean, a lot of that is uh, Patterson and Robson. And what I didn't realise when I watched that scene, having script, it was quite a, you know, sort of, not basic script, it was quite sort of simple. But what you realise is Robson brings something to it too because he's Geordie who's got four children of his own and he's not going to stand in the way of a grieving father. You know, he may... He may have protocol and rules, but he's literally faced with a man's grief. And so he's... So I just thought they both brought brilliant, a quiet sort of brilliance to it, really. Before this next question, a brief word from our sponsors. 
All veranda staterooms. Every day, a new view. Viking, offering a small ship experience on the world's oceans and a shore excursion in every port. Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Learn more at viking.com. Coming up next on Masterpiece on PBS, the premiere of Nolly begins March 17th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, followed by the premiere of Alice and Jack at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. This episode marks the introduction of Tom Brittany's Will Davenport, the chaplain at Corpus Christi, who, spoiler alert, uh, will take over yeah. as vicar in a few episodes. Uh, did you strategize about how to gently introduce Will to the audience ahead of his eventual arrival at the vicarage? We did, because I'm aware of those shows that, and you know, it works very well sometimes, you you know, you say goodbye to your old character and bang, you're in with a new character. But for us, we wanted to try something a little different. And firstly, we felt like we wanted to see Sydney and Will together. So, because it just, it infuses it, then you feel like, Sydney's given permission for for Will to be in the show in a way and we wanted to give space to Leonard for Leonard to have a little moment because our weaver is a brilliant actor and he he uh so he has quite a big role in the in the show as well uh before Will arrives Will does give up the identity of the anonymous person who gave him the murder weapon to Geordie who acknowledges what that must have cost Will personally to do before they shake hands. I mean, what does Jordy make of Will, and, and how does this scene set up their future dynamic? I think the thing about Jordy is he um, he lived vicariously through Sydney. That's what they he always said his relationship with him was, that they he sort of didn't quite, never quite fully got him, but really wanted his life and really found him interesting. And, and I think Will is a similar thing. He he sees this guy. He he sort of admires his um, you know, his stance and his beliefs. It's just like he finds him intriguing, and I think likes him. I from that moment, you you sort of he's annoyed with him, obviously, for not revealing secrets. But then they shake hands, and you get in that tiny moment, you get the kind of ah, this could work. This could be a friendship we'd like to see. But they talked a lot about um, uh. Robson and Tom talked a lot about their relationship being slightly different. The age gap, it was more kind of father and son, so it becomes something quite different from Sydney and uh, Geordie. Um, and it just gives us so much to explore, so it's exciting. Despite his negativity and gloom in this episode, <laughs> Sydney offers a word of advice to Reverend Todd. I can't see God. God always leaves a path back to him. You will find him. There's grace in this world if you look for it. Is that directed at himself as much as the reverend? I think so. I think you have to struggle when you're when you're feeling miserable, like Sydney is, or when you've lost someone, like Reverend Todd has. You struggle to see the, the good in the world. And I think through telling Reverend Todd that, he's sort of telling himself to, uh, you know, see the good, go out there and find it. And Violet is his grace, I think. It's a beautiful moment when Sydney steps aside to let Violet give the blessing at the Granchester fate, and she gives an impassioned speech about standing together. Uh, does the scene reaffirm her own sense of agency, her own mission and cause? Yeah, with that that was we were very keen because a lot of these women in the civil rights movement didn't get to speak. 
we were determined that she would in some way stand up there, even if no one wants to hear it and no one really understands what she's going on about because they're at a village fate. We wanted her to have her moment. I am from a place of violence, oppression and prejudice. You may look around you and think, who gives a damn? There's none of that here. But look harder. There is oppression. There is prejudice. There is suffering. And if one person suffers, we all do. If one person falls, we all fall. I truly believe there is a better time for all of us. One where we all have a moment in the sun. Jordy sums up Sydney's life as, quote, an endless merry-go-round. Sin, feel bad, drink. Sin, feel bad, drink. I mean, is it Violet that breaks him out of this cycle? Yeah, but I think it's, she holds a mirror up to him and says, take a good look, you need to sort yourself out. And I think that's what he needed. And it's as much about him finding agency and, and taking that power back. Because he's, he's very often, you know, he gives over to the whiskey drinking and the kind of staggering down the road drunk. He gives into those moments and... I think also Sadie, who is also somebody who helps him change, he he feels he let her down and he knows he's got to be better. Sidney has previously struggled between his duty to the church and his parishioners and his personal desire for fulfillment, for happiness, for love. Mm. You can see in the scene where Sidney decides to go after Violet that it's a monumental decision for him that's, Mm -hmm. that's weighing on him. What ultimately sways his hand? I think... It just comes down to love, I think. And also, here's a woman who, I think he says to her at that scene, in that scene, you may be a better person. And I, I think that's where it's... And that, for me, was what it was about. He he felt enriched by being with her, and and he doesn't want to lose that. I mean, he could, he could stay in that church and sit through all those meetings again, but nothing will ever be as good as being with her. And I think, yeah, I love that scene. I was, we were sat on the other side of the church watching him going, oh, go on, Sydney, go after her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they kiss outside the church in a, a beautiful scene that's full of love and optimism. Uh, in the script, you write very simply, Sydney kisses her, a most excellent kiss. <laughs> Sydney <laughs> has never been more sure of anything in his entire life. Uh, how does this moment change Sydney? And uh, how does the simplicity of that writing transform into that amazing scene? That's so funny. I don't have most excellent kiss. It's like Bill and Ted or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, the lovely director, um, Tim Fywell, he, so obviously, it's, I find it really fascinating at that process where you write something and you have kind of something in your head and then the director takes it and he puts in a big steady cam shot and it's all swirling and there's, you know, and the music kind of, John Lunn um, composed this beautiful track that really kind of soars and suddenly that scene you know, again, just everything kind of came together. All these people came together to make it really beautiful. This isn't about Violet staying in Sydney's world, but rather Sydney leaving to follow Violet into hers, uh, a reversal of a common trope in popular culture. Uh, was it important to you to not fall into that trap, that it's Violet who has to give something up for the man in her life rather than the reverse? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, I mean, at one point... Uh, Sydney says stay and and we wanted her to say no because you know it, her her world is everything to her and I think it says a lot about Sydney how Sydney has grown that he's willing to 
to sacrifice some of you know the people he loves to for somebody else because <laughs> he can be a little bit selfish at times so it was nice to uh yeah it was nice that violet got everything and and a chance to stand in up and speak and be heard Sydney's final sermon contains a message that we are never alone, one that seems to link itself thematically to Violet's speech at the fate. It's terrifying to step outside the bounds of our lives, to step away from those we love, from the friends we cherish. But sometimes we must. Sometimes God has a different path for us. One that feels impossible because we must leave so much behind. One that makes us feel alone. But know this. We are never alone. Was this an intentional thematic flourish? It was a goodbye without saying goodbye because, you know, you don't want to have endless goodbye scenes. So, And what was great, the director said to James in that scene, just look at Robson and direct it at him like you're just saying it to him. And James cried then as well, actually. He had a little, you know, kind of wibble because it was, it was, he was saying goodbye as well in a way. His character, that was his final sermon and he was saying goodbye to the show, goodbye to his friends that he'd made over, you know, four years. It was really sad. God, it's making me sad thinking about it. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, the final scene with Sydney and Geordie broke my heart. Yeah. Uh, both James and Robson are, are so fantastic in this scene, which radiates with, with pure emotion, particularly mm. when Geordie takes Sydney's hand and squeezes it. Mm. How hard was it to write this final scene between these two friends, both in the sense of Sydney and Geordie and in the sense of James and Robson? It, funnily enough, it was again, it was one of those scenes that sort of flowed because you knew what they'd say and you knew as friends what they would... They, they, there's so much that's unsaid in that scene as well. But kind of watching what they did to it was just beautiful. Again, there was a lot of crying on set. And at one point I heard the director go, uh, um, I need a tissue in here. <laughs> he was crying. <laughs> and um, it was really sweet. Um, yeah, everyone was going because... It's just a friendship that you want to keep going. But that's what's brilliant about Tom Brittany is he he kind of swooped in and, you know, in a way just brought that same loveliness. And we've just been very lucky. One last game. Oh. Uh, when did you know that you'd want to end their time together on the show with a final game of backgammon? Well, also because um, in the final book that James Runcie wrote, um, there is a sense that um in, in the book it's much more what you know one last case and we were just thinking what you know one last something would be good one last something and it's just that rem- they're remembering they play backgammon as one of their first scenes together and they talk about it on the in their final scene of that episode and it just felt like you know we've got to come full full circle here and and you know a lot of their friendship was forged in that pub <laughs> and over a backgammon table and I just thought that was something quite sweet about that. In many ways, Sydney and Geordie's dynamic is the central relationship of the series. Uh, was it daunting at all to dismantle that and build a new one between Geordie and Will? It's absolutely terrifying because you think, oh, God, if this doesn't work, you know, you, you've got <laughs> a lot of people's livelihoods riding on it, not, let alone, you know, a show that, 
we all love it a lot. So we want, we just kind of very, very sort of protective of it. So to bring somebody new in was hard. And it's like, where, where do you even begin, really? Um, but the, the, basically, a, a group of us got together before the show started, and we shared all our ideas. And very quite quickly, actually, Will's character came together. And you know, once you once you can sort of hear their voice, then things start to take shape. And then once you see, once you see Tom, like we saw quite a few people auditions, really good people, really good people. But Tom just had that. He's such a sweetie. He's a and so enthusiastic and and sort of and that was what we needed. That sort of exuberance, and he just brought that in spades. Uh, without spoiling too much, there's an increased attention on the characters of Kath, Mrs. C, and Leonard this season as they each get their own storylines to mm-hmm. shoulder. Uh, what went into the decision to give each of them more emphasis this year? Well, every year we kind of, we desperately want there to be room for them because they're all not only brilliant actors, but interesting characters. That There's so much to kind of unpack about them. And I suppose, in a way, not having... Having a bit of space with Sydney, not there for a little bit, and um, it just gave us a, a few more options, I suppose, and a bit more space just to explore them. And we were we were desperate to give them all. You know, I could do Leonard the series or Mrs C the series quite happily <laughs> if I could <laughs> spin offs. Um, so yeah, it was lovely to do. In the broadest of strokes, what can you tease about what's coming up for the rest of the season? So there's a, there is a lot for everyone. Um, Leonard and Daniel's relationship is coming on a pace, um, which is very nice to explore. But there will be some problems along the way, um, which will shake the vicarage. Um, Leonard, yeah, poor Leonard has has some problems. Uh, Mrs C, equally, uh, there's a kind of fractured relationship. We wanted to have a sort of dynamic in the... um, yeah, a dynamic in that vicarage. You know, the family is struggling without Sydney there, so there's a lot of exploration of that. And for Cathy, her decision to take the job, it was, again, it was about exploring women's experiences in the workplace and, without giving too much away, tapping into that hashtag me too thing. <laughs> I'm just stop mm-hmm. there. Say no more. Daisy Coulomb, thank you so very much. No worries. Thank you for having me. While the viewing public mourns the early departure of James Norton from the fields and pubs of Granchester, Robson Green would like to remind you, he hasn't gone anywhere just yet. You know, I'm, I'm the old guy. He's the six-foot-two, charismatic, hyper-intelligent, beautifully talented James Norton. You know, it was tough. It was really, really tough. But the overriding arc of, of that moment was goodbye. But you have brought so much joy and love and generosity to this show that will be taken on by our new uh, charismatic member of the clergy, Tom Brittany. Grantchester star Robson Green joins us here on the podcast next Sunday, July 21st, to explore life without his original crime-solving partner. Masterpiece Studio is hosted by me, Jace Lakob, and produced by Nick Anderson. Alicia Baitup is our editor. Suzanne Simpson is our executive producer. The executive producer of Masterpiece is Rebecca Eaton.
Sponsors for Masterpiece on PBS are Viking Cruises, Raymond James, and the Masterpiece Trust.